0: i'm jeffrey grossenbach it's the ruby on rails podcast episode number 58 october 2007 more interviews from RailsConf europe in berlin want to let you know my friend fabio akita is hosting a reject conf type conference in sao paulo brazil november 17th go to ruby on rails for the details all right, RailsConf Europe in Berlin talking with David Chalimsky, one of the authors of RSpec.
1: Hello. Let me uh, clarify that statement you just made. Steve Baker is the author of RSpec originally. I am the lead developer and one of the core maintainers of it now and have been for over a year. But the original authorship, just want to give credit where credit's due. Great clarification. And like Hellasoy also? Aslak and Brian Takeda. Uh, Dave Estelles worked on it a lot early on, but he hasn't in a while. Uh, and if you go to the R-Spec, uh, org and look for the community page, you'll see well over 40 other contributors, which we're, we're pretty psyched about.
0: Now, personal plug here, I did a couple of peep code tutorials on rspec, and, uh, which you helped out with a, little, with a little bit, and they've gone absolutely nuts. I mean, I was really surprised at the level of interest. A lot of people want to learn spec. You taught a workshop on Monday, mm-hmm. and I heard that it was just packed. Did you find it was a lot of people who had tried it and wanted to f- find the details, or it was, learning it for the first time? It was kind
1: of about 50-50. We asked at the beginning who had been using RSpec, uh, and about half the people raised their hands. Okay. It might have been a little bit more, but it, it wasn't the whole crowd. Some people were just there because they had heard about it and wanted to find out what the deal was.
0: Now early on there were quite a few changes, iteration, syntax changes, uh-huh. but it's stabilized a lot now and see that was I back that when it was beta software? Big... And, yes. And so, you're allowed to do that.
1: So well not only are we allowed to do it, but I mean everybody is and and so there's this this thing, like Rails people know this, right? You take on this risk and you assume the risk. You know,
0: until something's formally released. So, yeah. Now, what's the plan from here on out? Do now that it's stabilized, are you forking off some other branches for experimental features, or is there a so a roadmap? Yeah. There. Well,
1: I, I would hesitate to call it a roadmap because that sounds a little more thought out and formalized. But we have a, we have a, an idea. Um, and the idea is that we'll start using the Linux model for the releases. So the even next even in odd numbers, right? The next release will be one point one. Now, all the stuff that's in uh, what was the original RSpec framework, um, which we're now calling the example runner, right? Because we talk about now descriptions and examples of behavior. Uh, so that's the it block. That's just the terminology that we're using. Instead of saying, well, I've got five it's in my describe, it's easier to say I've got five e- examples in my description. Yep. It kind of rolls better. And so uh, that's all going to uh, remain stable. That's not going to change. If will there, be. I'm sure there will be changes in the future, but they'll all be backwards compatible from, from here on in. The new piece that we're adding is the story runner, uh, which is formerly R behave, and we've merged the R behave framework into R spec, and that's only in the last couple of weeks. It's within the last month, and it okay. hasn't been released yet. Um, and so we will uh, will release that, and that'll be the 1.1 release with the story runner included. So the thing the thing that we're not sure about with that is we 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 want to be able to say, hey, the story runner is experimental use at your own risk. But the other stuff is solid, and you should use it. And I'm not quite sure how to message that with a version number. But we don't want to break the frameworks apart. The whole point of merging it in is because we want it to be one cohesive BDD framework.
0: That makes sense. You know, up till now, there's the core elements. Users should be valid, all these kinds of things. And you can do model tests and controller tests, and Mm -hmm. yet People have said, "Oh, well, how am I going to test the entire or specify the entire right. s- stack all the way through?" So mm-hmm. that story runners are going to fulfill that kind of a need. Exactly, exactly.
1: And so before before story runner before our behave existed, um, you know, I was always either using something like Selenium or Water uh, to do in browser testing, or Rails integration tests, or some combination thereof. So we definitely wanted to have a piece that could fulfill that role inside our spec. So.
0: Now, I was going to ask Jay Fields this. Maybe I'll ask him also. But he for under test unit, he has a very specialized system, which I've been using a little bit of in some of my legacy tests, where he actually loads up a active record connector that will throw an error uh-huh. during unit tests if mm-hmm. you even try to touch the database. Mm-hmm. For RSpec, it's kind of flipped. It's acceptable to use the database in unit tests, but encouraged to mock or stub in controller tests. How did you come about that philosophy? Well, there, there's a couple of
1: different schools of thought about how to deal with models. Um, and one is that uh, it's a unit test, so you shouldn't touch the database. And that comes from the sort of uh, more classic TDD approach about unit testing. Um, and. So, the 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 other thing is the other view is that you shouldn't be mocking out layers and layers and layers of the library that you're using, and in in order to uh, in order to spec out models that have associations um, and never touch the database, you have to recreate a lot of stuff. In the form of mocks yep. that exists in the Rails framework and not in your application, so there's there's a perspective that says you shouldn't be doing that because that's someone else's world and you shouldn't be messing with that. Um, and it it, it uh, the the risk associated with that is that their internals can change, and now you have to change everything in your app when you take on a new release in your in your tests. So the thing the thing that jay is doing is making sure that everything runs really fast yep and so he's there, there's a trade off that you have to take and the trade off is that either things are a little bit brittle and everything runs really really fast or things are a little less brittle and things run a little bit slower and he's taking the side of i want things to run fast because he's working on big teams with big with with huge amounts of code a lot of people who have to deal with that code and uh it, that yeah. So, and I,
0: brittleness may be less of an issue because with a big team, you have to have a real firm plan going into it, and you may not be doing massive changes. Well, no. I, See, th- maybe that's not the th- issue. This is an
1: interesting thing. Like, people get really freaked out
0: when they have to change
1: their tests when they change their code. Yep. And that's something that's never bothered me. And and like the, I think what that comes from is the notion that you know the definition of refactoring that we work with is that. When you're refactoring, you're changing the structure of the code without changing the behavior. And now we start talking about behavior-driven development, and it's all about behavior. And I think there is an unfortunate connection that's made there that says, oh, well, if I'm doing BDD, then I never have to change my tests if I change any of my my code. Yeah. Now, you shouldn't have to change any of the high-level tests, the ones you're doing, like the integration tests, if you're changing stuff under the hood. But if you're changing APIs of objects, then, then it makes sense. Then it makes perfect sense that you're going to have to change uh, the, the code that goes along with it. Now, I think it's it's great when you can minimize that, but I think having a goal of never having to do that ever is just unpragmatic.
0: Well, thanks for the thoughts. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Here at RailsConf Berlin, very secret interview with Dave Troy about special project... Tell us about it, Twitter Vision.
2: Yeah, well, what we did, um, uh, Twitter Vision is something that we put together back in about March, right around the time that Twitter was starting to take off, right around South by Southwest, that sort of thing. So um, at any rate, it's a visualization of all the traffic going through Twitter uh, on a Google map, and we have both a Google map version as well as a 3D version. But the visualization itself isn't kind of what's cool. What's cool is you can actually see what people are thinking around the world in real time. So we just see, you know, we've got tweets popping up here from Florida. We see something, you know, pop up from Italy or France or South America or something. And it's, you know, the kind of mundane stuff that people tend to Twitter about. But you get a real sense for
0: different languages, um, Japanese.
2: Yeah, and what's going on culturally. And because it's all like real time, usually a minute ago or less, um, you kind of can like even see breaking news stories spread around the world, that sort of thing. So, um, you know, we've got some different visualizations here, and we've got other features where you can kind of like rate which posts you like and stuff like that. And we create rank- rankings based on all that. But the cool part is, is that um, it's built in Rails and it actually uses Twitter's API. We mirror pretty much their whole database and build up all these features based on that. Um, and uh, then I also did another mashup based on the same basic underlying engine called Flickr Vision, which lets you see pictures from around the world. So, um, you know, if you uh, look at that, you'll see pictures from, you know, whatever, you know, people vacationing, people, uh, you know, Taking pictures of weddings. Saturdays are a big wedding day, that kind of thing. So, um, uh, we recently received notification that uh, the Museum of Modern Art is going to be having an ex- exhibition uh, in New York um, called "Design and the Elastic Mind," and they're going to be featuring uh, both Twitter Vision and Flickr Vision for three months, starting on February nineteenth to May twelfth. Um, and uh, so this will be the first time that a Rails app has been put into the Museum of Modern Art. And That's maybe amazing. the last time. You never know how this is going to go. So,
0: Probably wasn't your goal when you wrote it.
2: No, and, you know, like the concept of me having work in the Museum of Modern Art just, like, is strange, you know, to me. So, anyway, we're, we're pumped up. It's cool.
0: Now, any way you can hook this into the Rails track and show uh, which patches are being submitted all around the world? <laughs>
2: Yeah, actually we get a lot of requests for like can you do like a you know a such and such vision? So what we need is a Rails vision, figure out what the hell is going on with the Rails community.
0: <laughs> well awesome. Well flickervision.com and twittervision.com or Museum of Modern Art in February.
2: Yeah, exactly. Fifty seventh Street. Stop in and take a look. Beautiful. Alright, thanks Jeff.
0: Post RailsConf Berlin, talking here to Nick Seeger. So, on the uh, JRuby team now, you aren't working for Sun, at least not yet, right? Or did they hire you on, too?
3: They hired me on, You are yes. on, the, yes. okay. I've been with Sun since uh, May of this year, right around the time of uh, RailsConf Portland, actually. Um, but I didn't get hired to work on JRuby, oddly enough, which is not such a bad thing, actually. Um, Charlie and Tom, they're both pretty entrenched, uh, you know, uh, engineers on the on the, the core code base and I'm I'm along there cuz I've been a con- contributor in the past but uh, I see myself as more of an app developer and integrations developer and so I feel my role in the team and also at Sun is actually to t- to test JRuby to stress it out to make sure Rails works really well with it we're uh, developing a Rails app at Sun right now so we're we're going to making a use of JRuby in the process
0: Nice. So does that mean submitting a lot of bugs, or actually you'll come upon something and fix
3: it? Yeah, so I mean, I have commit rights, so I can make fixes as well. So I'm trying to fix things as I come across them when I can. Now, JRuby,
0: what, 1.0 was released six months? or? Yeah,
3: beginning of June was 1.0. We had a 1.0.1 release uh, just a few weeks ago. We'll probably push some more uh, compatibility releases out, and in addition, we're going to have a... Targeting a 1.1 release with a full compiler in uh, around runtime.
0: Now it seems like one of the big things that people were excited about, not only interoperability with other Java libraries, but also deployment and using existing Java solutions to deploy a Rails app. What's the state of that?
3: Sort of the state of the art there is, uh, you can do, you can you can package up Rails apps in a Java Web Application Archive WAR file today. And it works in just about any Java app server. Uh, at, at Sun, we're targeting using that kind of deployment strategy for our app. Basically, put in a war file, and we can put a bunch of Rails apps in a single Glassfish application server. And uh, we're looking forward to the hoped uh, efficiencies of not having to manage big packs of mongrels, um, especially as you start to run multiple apps at once.
0: So what's up? There's going to be another 1.1 release coming up
3: in the next few months. What yeah. are the plans for that? So uh, the, road, the basic roadmap is a full compiler. So JRuby's had a starting of a compiler for a while now, and Charlie's been working on it, and they're, he's promised to finish it by then. And what that means is that uh, your entire uh, Ruby program will be able to be compiled into Java bytecode and run, run uh, directly on the JVM, uh, which have a lot of interesting consequences for performance, for portability, uh, even obfuscation in some cases. People could use JRuby to compile the Ruby scripts into bytecode and it will be virtually, uh, virtually impossible to go back to, to the Ruby source. So that's kind of an interesting application too. Um, there's some other uh, things planned, I think, as well. Probably some more compatibility to performance fixes. And uh, I don't remember, there's quite a couple of items I don't have them on top of head.
0: Well, it's th- very exciting. Thanks a lot. Sure. So, RailsConf 2007, Europe in Berlin. It's over, standing here with uh, David Hanemar Hansen. What do you think the conference
4: at this time? I think it went great. I think it's uh, it's really interesting how the European conference kind of have a, a slightly different feel um, to it. It's a little bit, of course, it's, it's smaller, but it's also... This has a a different feel, so it's interesting to see people from a lot of different countries, uh, more so than the U.S. is of course, very U.S.-based. So it's just great to hear from people in Italy, people in France, people in Norway, all over the place. I get to talk to a lot of uh, people from those countries here versus in the the U.S., where I'm mostly hanging just out with Americans, so that's cool. It seemed like there were a lot of people who came to Portland, and then they also came to here,
0: but, of course... A lot of just Europeans. Yeah, yeah, up yeah. The yeah there's too. definitely
4: people doing uh, both, which I also think is actually pretty cool because, unlike a lot of conferences who are doing like US and EU. Um like our EU conference is actually not just a rehash of what's going on at, uh, at the American conference, which I think is a really big strength that we're not just recycling material. It's it's mostly all new uh, keynotes, it's all new presentations, and so on. And things move fast enough that six months apart, uh, a lot of new stuff will have come out. Now, in your keynote, you kind of warn people there's not going to be
0: anything groundbreaking, and yeah. there's a lot that people had seen, but right. Rails 2.0
4: coming out pretty soon... A little bit of stability then for the next few months. Yeah, I think so. I think it's. Um, I, th- I think it's. It's actually good that we're. We've fostered a lot of revolutions on people in a very short period of time in the past, and I think it's. It's good that people just get a uh, a chance to catch up in some sense. Uh, I think we've had a lot of stuff pushed out there that still haven't really been thoroughly adopted. So, for example, the REST stuff. I mean, it's been quite a while since we announced it. It's been even further since I developed the first app, according to those principles. But it's still not something that everybody has picked up on. So, I think it's good that 2.0 is going to improve on a lot of things, a lot of small things, but it's also giving people a chance to catch up on the big stuff.
0: One last technical thing. I was surprised that you said... Active resource was never really intended to be used outside of firewalls. At thirty-seven signals, you're using it internally between applications. Initially, people were very excited because they thought, "Oh, I'll consume all these remote APIs." But maybe that it's really there to change the way people design their
4: applications. Well, I, I think it's, it's uh, twofold. So I, I'm actually it's. it's kind of um, generous of me to say it's not being used outside because we're actually exposing something like the high-rise API our sample implementations actually active resources so anybody who wants to use high-rise will go through active resources and that's a public side which just saying like my own personal use of it is mostly to restructure my applications behind the firewall so I want high-rise to use the same credit card uh, storage mechanism as Basecamp does, and I don't want to duplicate the code. I don't want to do plugins. I want this to be a separate application. An active resource really allows you to to build a net of applications behind the firewall that you can hook up and share functionality in a really simple and easy to use way. So I think that's actually where it's going to have the biggest impact. Uh, there's been web services for a long time and and people are pretty used to using those for consuming external information, but perhaps they're not as used to re-architecting their internal uh, setups with uh, web services. And that's I think just... Active Resource makes that really easy because if you have Rails all around, you're already producing XML. Just by making a scaffold application, you have something that could be consumed by Active Resource. So I think that I'm hoping that more people would pick that up as their applications grow larger and as they want to separate more concerns out and so on and so forth. Exciting. We're going to look for a uh, Rails 2.0 preview release in the next couple of weeks then? Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm hoping actually shorter than that. I'm hoping that within the next week or so, we're going to wrap everything up. It's pretty much there. So, I mean, you can cheat and you can download Edge as it is, and it's going to be pretty damn close to what the uh, preview is going to look like. But when we do, it to do the preview, we're going to do real gems and we're going to do a uh, attack in SVN and so on and get people just ready to jump on 2.0. Thank you. All right.
0: The Rails Podcast is sponsored by Peepcode Screencasts. There's a new PDF book on Rails 2.0 by Ryan Daigle. Get it at peepcode.com.